Support for this podcast and the following message come from Hulu. With your favorite reality TV shows in one place, Hulu is the home for reality TV's biggest fans. Start your free trial today. Learn more at Hulu.com. For more than 20 years, PBS has ensured that one of the hottest places in American television is your attic. And it's not because that's where you keep your secret relatives or where you hold your private parties. It's because that is where your old stuff is. And if you want to know what all that old stuff is worth, you can take yourself right over to the people at Antiques Roadshow. Sometimes you'll find that you're sitting on buried treasure. I did not expect that. Uh, Whoa. Holy cow. And sometimes you won't. I found out that Grandma's bronze flatware from Thailand has a high lead content and it's not safe to use. Thank you, Antiques Roadshow. (laughs) I'm Stephen Thompson. And I'm Linda Holmes. And we are talking about Antiques Roadshow today on Pop Culture Happy Hour. We're joined, as always, by Glenn Weldon of the NPR Arts Desk. Hey, Glenn. Hi, Linda. And with us in our fourth chair, oh boy, we could think of no better guest Mm -hmm. to talk about this than the head honcho of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network and the host of the NPR interview show Bullseye, our pal Jesse Thorne. Hi, Jesse. Hey, buddies. (laughs) <laughs> so it's not every day that we do an episode on a TV show that has run in the United States since 1997 and in the UK longer than that. Yep. But I felt like it was so appropriate to engage Jesse in his love of Antiques Roadshow, which I have gotten to enjoy third hand via Twitter on occasion. I'm, I'm literally vibrating with excitement. <laughs> Now, Jesse, you are a guy who likes a flea market, a the sale, stuff like that. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I kind of grew up in the antiques and collectibles business. So my mom is, when I was like 10 or 12, my mom went to graduate school and ended up becoming a junior college professor. But previous to that and since then, she has been essentially an antiques dealer. So I grew up you know, my my parents were divorced. So I grew up on the weekends when I was with my mom going with her to the flea market. And when I was a kid going with her to her job as a clerk at an antique store in San Francisco. So it's always been a big part of my life. And these days, you know, as if I needed more jobs in addition (laughs) to the ones that you listed, I go to the flea market pretty much every weekend, which is one of the best parts of living here in Southern California. And I have like an antiques and collectibles shop online called the Put This On Shop, where I sell stuff that I buy. It is actually like, uh, you know, it's part of what pays my mortgage. Mm -hmm. There's some great, if you've never been to Put This On, what I like about it is it's, it's quirkiness, right? Which is sort of what we're getting into here, which is You know, you'll find stuff like uh, a pin that someone won for winning like an archery contest in the 1960s (laughs) or something like that. Or can I tell you that literally right now I'm wearing a silver pin on my lapel and it has a bumblebee on it. It's like a little round pin with a beautiful little bumblebee on it. And it's for the Yardley Beauty School, whatever that is. Um, But yeah, like one of the things that I find so compelling about antiques and collectibles and especially and this is also true of vintage clothes which is another thing that I've been interested in the thing is is that when you find something that is old it not only has it's not only one of a kind but it also has a story and you don't necessarily know what that story is or you don't know all of that story and that kind of builds in a potential that I think is really beautiful like 
the idea that this thing has had its own life before it came to you mm-hmm. uh, is really wonderful to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Jesse, you're talking about the value, I guess, of the thing itself, the object itself. But Antiques Roadshow is built on uh, something much more ephemeral and mysterious to me, which is how much it's worth, capital right. Yeah. <laughs> And that's the entertaining bit, right? That's the part where they say that economics is just group psychology, like the study of economics is studying what people do with their money. And that's why it's it's hard to be predictive. And here, this whole show is built around the cult of the expert who, based on their experience, right, determines this is what you should insure it for, which I don't understand. And this is how much it's <laughs> worth. And, yeah. and the magical thing about the show is that it lives on forever in reruns. And so when they do a rerun, yes, I love they this. lay over how much it was worth uh, yeah. when that show originally ran. And uh-huh. now five years later, 10 years later, it's worth uh, often less. Yeah. Uh, I don't know where this expertise comes from. <laughs> I don't know what Fruitwood well, is. Uh, I don't know what a lot of this is, but I, you know, this is not a show I watch a lot anymore because it's not, I don't flip through channels anymore. Mm-hmm. It's not the way I work. When I did, I used to tune in a lot. I mean, one of the interesting things here is I actually am in, in Camp Jesse on this in that I grew up absolutely steeped in collector's culture. I was raised by comic book experts, spent a lot of my childhood being dragged around by the ear to, to comic book conventions and science fiction conventions. And I've seen firsthand a lot of the obsession with valuation. My parents have edited price gu- comic book uh-huh. price guides. And, and my sister to this day, my sister and her husband, uh, like Jesse, operate a collectibles website. They kind of specialize in weird pop culture ephemera, which is near and dear to my heart. That stuff is all really cool. Watching it on this show, the tricky thing for me about this show is that the stuff I find most interesting, the the items I would be I would most covet as a viewer is stuff there are price guides for right. stuff mm-hmm. that you can go online. I know, you know, like I used to collect coins. I know what coins are worth. There are price guides for that. Comic yeah. books. This, because of that, the show has to focus on stuff like furniture and old dishes and yeah. like flatware. <laughs> and, well, and, so you're yeah. you're and, more interested in values in the age of mechanical reproduction. In other words, <laughs> like you want there to be a thousand of something in the market so we know exactly what it's worth. Whereas I think what one of the things that's special about the Antiques Roadshow is that often they are looking at something that there really is only one of in the world, right. whether yeah. whether it's a painting or whether it's antique furniture, which was made by, you know, a particular person in, you know, northern New York State in the late 18th century. And you can see that by the way the dovetails are done or whatever. Yeah. And I think so Stephen and I were watching one where it was a woman had brought in a sampler that her, I want to say, like, great-great-aunt or something like that had done to get into home economics college or something like that. And I looked at it and I sort of thought, how would this have value? Who would buy this? It's just that it's your family member. I would think of it as a keepsake. I wouldn't necessarily think of it as something that somebody would collect. And so then the guy who was valuing it said, well, you know, to a sampler enthusiast. <laughs> and I thought... It wasn't it was in Canada, so it was an enthusiast. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that I forget there is. Mm. And that's one of the things I find fascinating about this is remembering that for so many different things, there's a person whose whole thing that is. <laughs> like, there's a person whose whole thing is samplers, which is cool. I'm not making fun. It's cool and funny, but I'm unable to guess like what things are going to be worth because... I don't understand the cults of collecting 
around different kinds of things. Yeah, and their job is to know those right. those cultures. Exactly. But still, at the end of the day, an auction is just people in a room and you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what people are yeah. coming to that room with or for. And so do things that p- people say are, are, are worth this much do not fetch the price that they thought they were going to get? You were talking, Glenn, about what does it mean for something to have an insurance value? What does it mean for something to have a retail value? What does it mean for something to have an auction value? Which is something that they n- never really clarify on the Antiques Rojo. <laughs> no, I think don't. it's a weakness of the Antiques Rojo. But really what that's about is do things obviously have different values in different contexts, right? So, like, if you take the magician Ricky Jay, right? And Ricky Jay, the brilliant magician and and actor, is one of the world's greatest collectors of ephemera and books about unusual performance and magic, right? And if you say, I am a private dealer and I have a copy of Harry Houdini's handwritten diary, I'm sure that Ricky Jay's interests are much more interesting and specific than that. It would be like, man with uh, flippers for hands who was famous for juggling 17 saws. Sure. Uh-huh. But uh, you have this thing that there is only one of in the world, and Ricky Jay is the greatest expert in the world on this and the greatest collector in the world of this. Now, if you take that to an auction that Ricky Jay isn't at, it has a certain value. <laughs> uh-huh. If you are the person who has developed the expertise to know that Ricky Jay is the person who needs this, it has another value. So... You know, the insurance value is essentially what would you have to pay if today you had to walk out into the street and say, I want a new one of this. Mm -hmm. The retail value is what it would cost in a store that has overhead and has the cost of developing a clientele and so on and so forth. And the auction value is kind of a wholesale value, which is what would a dealer who walks into an auction who's looking for things to move to the, Mm -hmm. you know, to the end client pay. But to me, what's beautiful about that expertise, and this is something that maybe is different if you didn't grow up surrounded by flea market people. The people who make their livings buying and selling things, whether it's at the fanciest auction house in the world or whether it's at the low-down, dirtiest swap meet in Pomona, they are complete autodidacts, right? It is a fundamentally autodidactic mode of enterprise. Like, you can't go to school for valuing antiques. You know, Mm -hmm. the closest you could get is an art history degree, and I'm sure that some art evaluators have art history degrees, but many do not. Instead, it is a field that rewards interesting people who are interested in interesting things to, frankly, an almost absurd extent. But also, it is fascinating to me because it is so deeply tied to these people's livelihoods, right? That developing expertise, the only thing that you have as a dealer of antiques and collectibles is your expertise, right? If there is a price guide for it, then you do not have any price advantage over everyone else in right. the market. Right. So you can't, you don't eat. Mm-hmm. So you develop expertise about really particular things, and then that expertise both helps you communicate what's special about an object or a piece of art to the buyer, and it also helps you know what represents the best and most valuable in whatever thing you specialize in. So, you know, antique dealers often specialize, you know, Nicholas Lowry on the Antiques Roadshow specializes in posters. It's really in in a lot of ways it's like a craft of knowledge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, which I think is really beautiful and amazing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it is too. And I think that what you often get on the actual roadshow is somebody who comes in 
they often either completely lack that knowledge or the knowledge that they have is soft enough that they're not sure what exactly they have. And so a lot of times you're getting a comparison between sometimes family lore about what an object is, Mm -hmm. where somebody will say, well, grandpa brought this back from... You know, when he fought in World War One, he brought this back from from the war and he carried it back in his bag wrapped in a sock and all that stuff. And then the person can really explain to you, well, you know, here's what it actually is. It's actually a beer can. <laughs> <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually, you know, or, or they'll be able to say, well, even when he would have bought this, it would have been a reproduction. And, right, you know, yeah. or sometimes. Yes, you know, your grandfather really happened on a an Happened on the Kaiser's and... skeleton. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I brought a clip Kaiser's in just to illustrate how much this show has penetrated the culture. There's an episode of Will and Grace where they go on Antiques on the Road, mm-hmm. NBC versus uh-huh. PBS. Yeah. This kind of hits the schadenfreude aspect of the show. This is antiques as spectator sport, right? And so sometimes the ups and downs are what you're watching for. My favorite part is when someone brings in something that they think is worth millions and Porcelain Paul tells them that it's worth like four dollars <laughs> and the camera stays on them and their face goes. <sighs> There's also this clip from Frasier, an episode where Martin and Niles and Frasier all of a sudden realize that they all love this show and so they create a drinking game out of it. But the real masterwork is this unique Art Deco headboard. It features a variety of veneers. Veneer! <laughs> Mahogany veneer. Veneer! Yeah, I, it's, but this show has been around for 20 years. And 20 years ago, there was no such thing as Google, or at least there probably wasn't in, in the format that it is now. Uh-huh, it wouldn't uh-huh. have been easy to do an online search. Yep. So I think people are engaging with the show in a different way because it's it's one source of information among what is now kind of overwhelming. Yeah, I I think that's absolutely true. And sometimes they talk on the show about like this was appraised at X and we're telling you it's worth Y. One of the things that I find really interesting about this show is there aren't that many properties like this where they're not really built around any one personality. Yeah. And that's how a show like this in in England, this show has been going almost 40 years. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that you do that is you have almost like the host right now is Mark Wahlberg, the other Mark Wahlberg. Not that Mark. Not that Mark Wahlberg. (laughs) In many ways, the anti-Mark Wahlberg. (laughs) The former host of Temptation Island, Mark Wahlberg. I have described him on Jordan Jesse Go, my comedy show, as Mark L. Wahlberg, the world's worst Mark Wahlberg. And he, he, you know, he kind of comes on for a, for a few minutes and then kind of disappears. And you've got these appraisers. Some people have have strong opinions of the various appraisers the who come twins. on the, the creepy twins. Everybody talks about, mm-hmm. but really, you can kind of cycle people in and out of this show pretty easily. And the star just becomes these kind of increasingly far flung locations mm-hmm. and just the looks on people's faces as they find out what stuff is worth. And I yeah. think that quality kind of makes this show eternal, even though, as you said, Glenn, it's not really as necessary. Like, there are more and more and more ways to find out what things are worth. Stephen, I want to add something to what you said, which is, and I think that this is something that maybe is only something that I feel really strongly and casual Antiques Roadshow viewers don't feel as strongly about. Wow, I'm really doing this. Um, (laughs) But, you know, so every episode of the Antiques Roadshow has a dozen reveals built into it, right? So every object, we find out what it's worth, and the person is either surprised or not surprised. 
you know, usually if they bought it in an antiques fair and they're kind of fancy, then they're disappointed. <laughs> Otherwise, they're positively surprised. It's a very positive show. But I think that the other remarkable thing about this show is that there are no other television shows that I know about that are as dedicated to beauty and art and what human beings are capable of. These stories about a painting, stories about a piece of furniture, even, you know, stories about athletics or something like that are a really essential part of what makes the show work because there have been commercial versions of this show. I mean, I don't know if you guys remember when the FX network launched as FX television served fresh daily and the premise was all the shows were live, but they had like a live auction evaluation show where people just rolled through the studio and they told them what their things were worth. And I think maybe you could call in and buy it or something. And because that was missing the story of the magic of beauty, it really wasn't a particularly good or interesting show. Like, that does give it a structure. It gives it some pop that you find out what it's worth at the end and you get to see the person's face. But in between, you hear the story of an artist or a craftsperson uh, or a person from history or a time from history. And I think that's really beautiful and laudable and one of the best parts of the show. Can I can I admit to like next level antiques roadshow nerdery? Of course. I think you already have, but keep going. <laughs> okay, so obviously I love to watch the American Antiques Roadshow. I have my favorite appraisers, primarily Nicholas Lowry, aka Roadshow F. Tompkins, uh, <laughs> the, the poster appraiser who has completely head to toe copped the entire steez of my friend, the brilliant comedian Paul mm-hmm. F. Tompkins. Mm-hmm. But I have to say that the American Antiques Roadshow is not my favorite Antiques Roadshow. Mm-hmm. I prefer the UK Antiques sure. Roadshow. Uh, and the the UK Antiques Roadshow, which, as you said, has been going longer, is hosted by a former British newswoman uh, named Fiona Bruce, on whom I definitely have a crush. For her, like, intelligent clearness, her clarity, <laughs> she's so clear and pleasant. And they hold the show at like great houses in the oh, UK often. Sure. Sometimes other historical venues, but typically the great houses that are protected by the National Trust in the UK. So they're these spectacular venues and they have such a parade of, I mean, if, if you think that the completely autodidactic weirdos who appraise <laughs> antiques in the United States are hilarious. You should check out the funny Britons who do it. And they talk like this. <laughs> and um, it's Uncanny. just it's just totally <laughs> magical. And it makes me so it makes me so upset. A that that the roadshow, which I think has a very very competent host in uh, Mark L. Wahlberg in the United States, doesn't have a host that I love like I love yeah. Fiona Bruce, yeah. but also that they record it just in convention halls. Yeah, yeah. sure do. I, I, d- I did want to briefly touch on that. How much of the ambient noise of this show is the ambient noise of like? A convention of insurance salesmen. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. You just have this like <laughs> going on, and that really the only music. You know, if I watch a fair amount of reality television, and they tend to pump up a lot of music, and this really just has spring, <laughs> and that's about it. Well, so. or if they have one where they explain to you the value has gone down, it goes like. <laughs> that's right. I forgot about that. I also, well, I mean the the graphics package on the American Antiques Roadshow and the music package. I mean, it is though they created it in. Broderbund 
print shop. <laughs> <laughs> it is the saddest graphics package in television history. It's true. And uh, I think because of the BBC has higher production values, uh, the UK one's a, a little nicer looking. Sounds very good. I want to hear what all of you out there think about the uh, valuable finds as well as the dusty teapots of Antiques Roadshow. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet us at PCHH. When we come back, it is going to be time to talk about our very favorite thing, what is making us happy this week. So come right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Hulu. With the largest streaming library full of your favorite reality TV shows, Hulu is the home for reality TV's biggest fans. Catch all the drama, all the tears, all the heartbreak, all the competition. Because Hulu has your reality TV. Start your free trial today. Learn more at Hulu.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Pocket Casts. Whether you're new to Pocket Casts or have been a fan for years, as an NPR listener, they're offering you a free three-month trial of Pocket Casts Plus, giving you all of the great features of their free mobile app, plus more. Listen to the podcasts you love and discover even more when you redeem your trial at pocketcasts.com slash NPR. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What is making us happy this week? Stephen Thompson, what is making you happy this week, buddy? The enormous swell of relief I felt when I opened Twitter uh, at the beginning of this week and saw that Tom Lehrer was trending. Clicked through in a cold sweat and saw that on Monday, Tom Lehrer turned 90 years old and is not, in fact, dead. Yay. Um, not dead. Two, two, two reasons to celebrate. I think we've talked at some point on this show about so. uh, our shared love of Tom Lehrer. If you have not uh, uh, delved into his 37-song uh, catalog, uh, it is a complete and utter delight. I actually got a chance to interview him back in 2000 for the AV Club. He almost never gave interviews, uh, still does not give interviews. He is, uh, thankfully, he remains an utter delight. Uh, he was my professor in college. Steve. Oh my God! You, so you took yeah. he was a, he's a he was a mathematics professor for many many years. Well, he became an emeritus professor, and he I took a class about American musical theater oh. with him and two other emeritus professors at UC Santa Cruz, where I went. And he was wonderful. He's hilarious, very grumpy, uh, <laughs> and he definitely he definitely said that the only two songwriters he liked since like Candor and Ebb or something like that. So, someone since since the 1950s. So like Weird Al. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he loves Weird Al. Uh, Were uh, Randy Newman Hmm. and Stephen Sondheim. Okay. (laughs) And you're like, well, yeah, you would think that, Tom Lehrer. Yep. Yep. That checks out. Thank you very much, Stephen Thompson. Glenn Weldon, what is making you happy this week? Got a thematically appropriate happy this week. I've talked about the Alan Bennett uh, series, uh, Talking Heads, which is a series of monologues that were televised on PBS. There is one in particular called Hand of God, uh, which stars Eileen Atkins as this antique shop owner who just addresses the camera and t- talks about her life. And uh, she is filled with such perfect, withering disdain for the Antiques Roadshow and for all th- those people that it brings into her shop. Woman comes in this morning, starts rooting about in her shopping bag, saying she's got something I might be interested in, being in the attic, etc., etc. The usual rigmarole. Hadn't given it a thought, apparently, until she'd seen something similar on... And I knew what was coming... That television program about antiques. This thing has such an intricate, lovingly crafted arc to it, where this snobbiness gets its comeuppance. It's just so 
incredibly well-written, incredibly well-directed, and funny in a very kind of um, dispiriting way. You can find it online. It's all over the place. But it's called Hand of God by Alan Bennett, starring Eileen Atkins. Thank you very much, Glenn Weldon. Jesse Thorne, what is making you happy this week? Well, last time I was on the show, I talked about All Creatures Great and Small, and then I just came on and talked about how much I love the Antiques Roadshow so Mm. much. So I figured I better make a left turn in the tone of my recommendation, <laughs> mm-hmm, lest mm-hmm. people lest people stereotype me as a particular type of dude. Uh, and I am much more than that. I contain multitudes. <laughs> so my pick this week is a YouTube video of the San Francisco rapper Andre Nicotina, a.k.a. Dre Dog, that is from a uh, like a public access television show in 1993. And it's before his first album came out. And he's often described as a horrorcore rapper, which is to say that his rapping is very scary and intense. And the song is called The New Jim Jones. It's about how he has Jim Jones-like qualities. It's absolutely convincing. And it is all the more compelling for the fact that this type of hip-hop, both this hyper-local hip-hop and uh, this intense horrorcore, is very much a kind of cassette tape type of music and this having been recorded off of cable access tv i mean it's really just this skinny 20 year old guy standing in front of a homemade set and he has one backup dancer just this one girl who's dressed kind of like a low flash version of the fly girls and she's just like obviously a a girl he knew it's both a kind of beautiful intimate expression of this very raw and local form of art and genuinely kind of scary. Like, he's a kind of a, a scary dude. It's kind of a, at the intersection of scary and beautiful in the way that people who love brutal death metal or whatever <laughs> describe. Sure. So say your prayers and I might be there sitting like a pastor in your family chair but I'm Drake Dog. I don't fetch bones the sicker version of a new Jim Jones. Tell them again uh, what it is called and where they should find it. <laughs> Well, they should probably find it from a link in the show notes of this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you go on YouTube and you search for Dre Dog, New Jim Jones Live, there you uh, go. don't click on any links that don't look like they're a 20-year-old standing in front of a homemade set. <laughs> and you're all set. Thank you very much, Jesse Thorne. Making me happy this week, I had a couple of different choices. I eventually decided to go with a Molly Ringwald essay in The New Yorker. If you don't know her as anything other than perhaps a young actress, she's really an interesting writer now. She's doing a lot of interesting stuff, and she did a segment for This American Life a while ago where she watched The Breakfast Club with her daughter, and they were talking about it. But now in The New Yorker, she's kind of brought some of those uh, feelings about revisiting her early films to this essay in which she talks about how to process films where now she sees the racial stereotyping, she sees the very cavalier treatment of women's sexual agency, kind of, and, and a lot of things that now she would find incredibly troubling in a new piece. And she finds them troubling in these old pieces, too, but she does a very good job of writing about the process of reconciling, you know, her personal affection for John Hughes, her feeling of indebtedness to him, but also her understanding of his limitations as a as a creator 
and that those limitations were of a piece with a lot of other stuff that he did. And that, to me, is a very good example of how you take something that is of a particular time and you don't let it off the hook, but you also look at it in context. It's a really tricky balance that people don't always undertake very well. And I think she undertook it very, very well in that piece. Again, it's in The New Yorker, Molly Ringwald writing about her early films with John Hughes. I for sure recommend that. Can we just do one more bonus uh, perennial happy, which is uh, Maximum Fun? Linda, you and I are both Aww. members in longstanding. <laughs> we, we are. We love these podcasts, it, which include Pop Rocket and Bullseye. And I do listen uh, religiously to Jordan Jesse Go. One of my favorites, the one that as soon as it downloads, I am listening to it. That's uh, Stop Podcasting Yourself. Yeah. I just love that mm-hmm. show. Oh, yep. I and I will. Uh, I am currently in negotiations to go on Can I Pet Your Dog? There you go. Yay. And talk about <laughs> my new dog, whose name is Brian. And he's the best. Hi, buddy. He's at home. Uh, (laughs) Thank you so much, Jesse. This was really fun having you here to talk about your great love of old things. (laughs) Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate you thinking of me. And if folks are looking for a cultural fix that involves me, my NPR show, Bullseye, is an arts and culture interview show. All of you have been on in the past. But this week's show is Alexander Payne. Eugene Levy and Kay Cannon. Uh, <laughs> next week's show is Edie Falco and Roy Wood Jr. So if you want to hear from any of those folks in like an actual insightful conversational context about you know where art comes from, that's what we do on Bullseye. And I think that a lot of Pop Culture Happy Hour listeners might like it. I think Agreed. so, too. I think so, too. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. You can follow all of us on Twitter. You can find me at Linda Holmes. You can find Stephen at I Dislike Stephen. You can find Glenn at G.H. Weldon. And you can find Jesse at Jesse Thorne. You can also hear him every week on Bullseye and Jordan Jesse Go. You can follow our producer, Jessica Reedy, at Jessica underscore Reedy, and our producer, Emeritus, and music director, Mike Katzif at Mike Katzif. That's K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band, Hello, Come In, provides the music you are bobbing your head to right now. So thanks to all of you guys again for being here. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you have a second and you're so inclined, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. That will help more folks to find the show. We will see you all back here next week. It's Lulu Miller, and I am back with a new story for Invisibilia. It is about the pleasures. It's just electric. And the dangers. There's just nothing more scary. Of trying to live between two worlds. You can find Invisibilia on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts.